0: I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. This is February Seshin, the fourth talk, titled Love and Death, a poem by Rumi. The nothing of rose light. Death comes, and what we thought we needed loses importance. Death comes, and what we thought we needed loses importance. The living shiver focused on a muscular, dark hand. Rather than on the glowing cup it holds, or the toast being proposed. In that same way, love enters your life. Love enters your life. And the I, the ego, a corrupt, self-absorbed king, dies during the night. Let him go. In the dawn, breathe cold new air. Let him go. In the dawn, breathe cold new air. The nothing of rose light. The nothing of rose light. Someone said that love and death are the only movements the soul makes. And our practice says that love and death are simultaneous, perhaps even the same. So let's reflect on on the fear of death and the way it shows up in our lives on a daily basis. How does it reveal itself? on a daily basis. And again, we're thinking big about death. We're not just thinking about literal death, whatever that is, that thing that none of us have experienced. We're thinking big about death. So contemplate the breath. In times of repose, are you able to leave breathing in its autonomy? And just. Take a look now. Can you just let the breath breathe itself? Or do you find that habitually control is asserted? Can you leave inhalation to inhalation and exhalation to exhalation? Can you allow the exhalation to be as long as it will be? Or do you interrupt that and gasp for air? Do you decide that's that's enough release? Can you allow the gap between exhalation and inhalation? Letting the exhalation be autonomous. How long is the space? Before inhalation comes? And how is it to allow that space? <clears throat> as you've been sitting Zazen or as you go through your life, how and when does the breath get stopped up, grasped, stifled somewhere in its cycle? Of course, when we're overtly afraid, we know that we seize up and the breath seizes up, which is a strange thing because the last thing we need to do when we're afraid is hold our breath. Is this breath permeating into the bottom of your belly? Or is there something that stops that flow, seizes it. The grasping and the stopping of the breath is an intimate emblem of clinging to life, Of clinging to life, especially not being able to exhale. One of the core practices of the Rinzai tradition is learning to fully exhale. In cutting off the breath, we're saying no to death. But by doing so, we're saying no to life. Because when you exhale fully, then you inhale fully. Or you are inhaled fully. Regarding the fear of death, contemplate empty spaces. For example, our discomfort was silence. We're sensing that silence is pregnant, but we fear what might emerge from that womb. And so we anxiously fill it. Perhaps hurrying our speech. We mark possible openings with filler words. Fearing an interruption of our expression. What if something else comes through? What if I can't get this point across? Hurrying our speech, taking wordlessness as dreadful and dead rather than vibrant air. When I was younger, I dated a Japanese woman, and she said, American men talk so much. In Japan, it's sexy if a man can be quiet. <laughs> I was 17, so I really didn't have that option. Taking wordlessness as dreadful and dead rather than vibrant air. A fear of death and the planning for every unplanned moment. How often do we have a field of unscheduled time and we find out what it wants when it arrives? How frequently do we allow that? Planning for every unplanned moment. The clock is ticking. Fear of missing out. FOMO is a force. Fear of missing out. Feared what is, fearing what is laid to rest if one rests. When we rest, what is laid to rest? And what are we afraid of there? The conversation an encounter that we know is upcoming, mentally mapping it in advance. Selecting some kind of strange and stale security over a spontaneous communication. Protecting ourselves against that open moment when we might not have already thought of what we're going to say. Waking with anxiety, ill at ease. Coming right out of dream into a state of anxiety. Each morning we're birthed into a new gauntlet of choiceless transformation. The world is acting upon us from inside and out. Reborn each morning, a body propelled with pressing imperatives. Confronting a belief, entering a conflict, expanding a view, dissolving an identity, perhaps shouldering a task. All of these things, imperatives to changing. imperatives to changing, all of them demanding a kind of death. For some people, losing or letting go of a belief system is harder than giving up a limb. We'd rather carry our resentment Than openly engage in a conflict because that demands a death and the stress of holding it all at bay. So we resist transformation. And perhaps we're the one creature that can do so. But that resisting of transformation is part of transformation as well. Resisting transformation is a change. It's unfolding. It's happening. It's evolving us in a particular way. From another angle, resisting transformation is a way that we make beauty and enact love. things are unfolding or changing and we are saying this should be sustained. This is not ready to be offered up or let go. This should be developed. This should be followed through. Almost more than anything, Buddha Dharma is distinguished from other worldviews, by its emphasis on intention, on the empowerment of intention. We, through winning a degree of choice, we don't believe in utter free will. We, through winning a degree of choice, comprehending the power of intention within our lot, We navigate our fate. We navigate more consciously our course within our lot. We direct transformation to one degree or another. And see how you exercise the power of intention on a minute level. That's what we're doing. Zazen for is to observe the way the universe is on a minute level. It's all right here. In a sense, all Zazen is, is intention. It's nothing more than that. We have the conditions of having a good posture and we do some Training of the mind, and maybe we tune the breathing, but presence is simply an intention. That's why in in Soto Zen and in other traditions, effortlessness is, in some sense, considered the end point. It's just a matter of intention. So we're sitting in Zazen, and we have something rise up, something that is felt as unpleasant. And to the degree that we've won choice, we can select equanimity over struggle. We can intend non-reactivity. Or we see a train of thought coming up that we know we have suffered this train of thought so long. How is it still going? Somehow it is. And we see it rise up and there's just enough space to select not engaging it. And it just passes through. So we resist transformation that we see as undesirable. And is that resisting of transformation we see as undesirable, is that wisdom or ignorance? Who's it to say in which way we should change? Depends on the resistance, I suppose. But sometimes the world wants to change us. Is it wisdom or is it ignorance? We exercise the power of intention on a minute level and it's no joke. I believe it was Bonkei, the Japanese Zen master, 13th century, talking about the mind and he said, in one instant of anger, you're reborn in the hell realms. I think he actually said, in one instant of anger, you're reborn as a demon. And that moment of entering that mind state is a different reality. That moment of entering that mind state without space, because that's a different story, is a moment pregnant with danger. So in one instant of anger, you're reborn in the hells, but then Where? depends on where the mind turns next, the outlook it clicks into. Sometimes habit is using us, and this whole process is entirely unconscious. And sometimes it's us utilizing habit. We make a habit of equanimity over struggle. We make a habit of presence. We're reborn with the next thought, or we're not reborn by thoughts. Another option that opens up for us. So through presence, we are winning more and more influence. Actually, on this issue of free will versus determinism or fate, Buddha was silent. That was the response. Not affirming or denying either. Through presence, we are move, winning more and more influence. We're creating winds that move us in this direction rather than that. Some of the winds we've created, we created 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 or 5. And those winds are still blowing. Sometimes we're blown off course. Sometimes we're uplifted. Sometimes we're sheltered by mindfulness from the winds that are blowing. Sometimes the winds of change are so ferocious you can't stake any ground. Vast currents sweeping that overwhelm all resistance to transformation. It's ferocious pandemics, war, disease, Sometimes a submerged part of ourself emerging. And all the previous dreams and plans and designs on transforming this way or that are overwhelmed, at least temporarily, at least from the point from which we can see. So we're trying to explore on a on a very experiential level, life and death, and what that means, and what this is. Is this resonant? Between life and death, we're doing our best to find beauty in between. Put that in your words. Between life and death, we're doing our best to find freedom, to find connection, to find wisdom, to find comfort. Between life and death, we're doing our best to make sense. And maybe that's where the fear of death is stemming from. Maybe there's a fear that we will run out of time. These circumstances we've inherited, the materials that we have to make freedom with, they can't repeat. They can't repeat, and they might not. What if life is not personal? What if forces that are living through us, we are in service to them? What if fear and anxiety have something to do with that? Maybe there's a fear we won't live up to it. And the clock's ticking. And the clock's ticking. This body with its relations and position and perspective daily biologically devolving. It's real. I wonder if you can feel death or fear in your body right now. Maybe it's helpful to close your eyes and just see around this topic, is there anything humming in your belly, in your heart? Is the fear of death worn as some kind of tension, a clench? Some people can imaginatively connect with their death. And what comes up as you do that? If it happened tonight, what's left undone? Is there something that's been turned away from? And if you can contact that fear, you can also stay with it, staying tuned into the fluttering belly, staying tuned into the rapid heart. That's how it impacts us. That's how it really says what it needs to say. And so bringing close, even closer, personal death's reality and steering clear of morbidity or frivolity, which are kind of reactivities to death. Like on one hand, there's the attitude of, it doesn't matter. And on the other hand, there's just this shirking from life because we see that to live is to choose what we will lose. But bringing closer, if we don't fall into these personal death's imminent reality, the opportunities we do have shine more with value. The opportunities we do have, all these inspiring stories about people who have near-death experiences and the fresh eyes they return with. the opportunities we do have shine more with their value. Love and death are simultaneous. Being intimate with death, we can actually love what we love. It's very difficult. Let's say it's not an automatic thing to no longer live out someone else's desires. There's a work there. There's a soul retrieval there. But making death intimate really helps because we more and more trust that we love what we love and there's no time or justification to live this life playing out someone else's desires. And let's not blame our parents. To more and more trust that we love what we love. As practitioners, I think in some way or another, we're loving the beauty of liberation. However you might say that. We're loving the beauty of liberation. So fear of death, perhaps even fear of any kind, is a luminous Buddha. Fear of death is a luminous Buddha, our luminous Buddha, calling from a state of potential. I was reaching for an image like an ovary receptive to insemination and the body in heat. There's something that can be born. You may have heard of the teaching of precious human birth. Precious human birth, which is one of the mind trainings in, in Tibetan Buddhism, is you really train your cognition to recognize that the opportunity for leisure, the opportunity for sufficient security to look into the mind is extremely rare and brief. I'm not afraid to say I think Buddhism is a little anthropocentric. But nonetheless, what they're talking about is that it's precious to have access to intentionality. It's precious to have access to teachings that point to the nature of mind. Traditionally, the human birth is the only embodiment that can clarify karma and harness intention. So what makes the animal realm the animal realm is instinct only. What makes the hungry ghost realm the hungry ghost realm is desire only. What makes the hell realm the hell realm, anger only. The gods realm, the god realm, jealousy only, defensiveness. So precious human birth means we need this embodiment to clarify karma and awaken. A human birth is the ability to do so. Practice turns life precious because no experience need be a waste. No experience. And especially as you sit on these cushions, which is a calling forth. It's a calling forth. I think it's really important to recognize that. We have all kinds of ideas about what we want to do and what this is about. And they may or may not be accurate, but when you take this posture and you begin to pay attention, it's a calling forth. No experience need be a waste. All of this body, heart, and mind, all that comes and goes, all that we pass through is lead that can be turned into gold. And that's an alchemical metaphor. The alchemists would want to transmute lead into gold. Something heavy, something we don't think is very valuable. It seems to take a long time in practice for us to not mistake what's coming up as a mistake. Some, some normative about how the practice is supposed to go or look lodges in our mind and then we relate to that normative for a very long time. Most of us. So it's not even quite accurate to say that lead can be turned to gold because it's already gold. It's just hidden gold. In darkness, there is light, but don't look for that light. Darkness meaning not knowing a lack of clarity, a lack of certainty. Don't look for that light because the light that we tend to look for is the light that we imagined, not the light. So whatever comes up as you sit, I don't know why we say sit because this is something we can do all day long. Whatever comes up, especially that which presents a barrier, ask what is this? What is this? That's trusting that the Dharma is your body. That the universe is not dead matter. That there's something awake and just existing. Especially that which presents as a barrier. Ask, how is this wisdom? Granted, it's a lot easier after the fact. Maybe that's what the teachings are for or a teacher is for. is for you to come in and complain that it's not going well and for the teacher to say, how is this wisdom? And of course that helps them to possibly practice the same thing. Whatever comes up, how do you know something's a barrier? Well, you split off from it. It's an object you're either longing for or trying to avoid. The mind has started to believe that there's a problem here. There's a problem here. And that's when we can ask, how is, this, how is this wisdom? How is this gold? The nothing of rose light. Death comes, and what we thought we needed loses importance. The living shiver Focused on a muscular dark hand rather than on the glowing cup it holds or the toast being proposed. In that same way, love enters your life and the I, the ego, a corrupt self-absorbed queen dies during the night. Let her go. In the dawn, breathe cold new air, the nothing of rose light. Let's do an an awareness experiment. Open yourself without reservation to the whole of the moment, the whole span. Opening to what's internal, what we feel is external. Open without reservation, welcome without reservation. And with all of your senses, all of your being, tasting the moment, tasting the moment with everything. How does that feel, that wide openness? acceptance like a sky noticing that it's always full this openness is full of texture of life noticing that this openness, this moment is vibrant yet it's always gone It's always gone. The breath is gone. The sound is gone. The thought is gone. Totally open the the pleasure of no contraction. And at the same time it just it just goes. Gone yet vibrant, gone because vibrant. A famous poem by Khalil Gibran. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing their name. called On Death. And this was, I didn't, I didn't know about this beautiful poem, but I was at the memorial for an old friend of the monastery. And one of the early lay people who, with her husband, moved near to uh, the monastery to help found it. And it was a person of exemplary offering of themselves exemplary life of love. On death. You would know the secret of death. You would know the secret of death, but how shall you find it unless you seek it in the heart of life? But how shall you know it unless you seek it in the heart of life? The owl, whose night-bound eyes are blind unto the day, cannot unveil the mystery of light. If you would indeed behold the spirit of death, open your heart wide unto the body of life. That's what we're we're doing. That's excellent zazen instructions. Open your heart wide unto the body of life. For life and death are one, even as the river and the sea are one. For life and death are one, even as the river and the sea are one. Which one's which? In the depth of your hopes and desires lies your silent knowledge of the beyond. Can you trust? that you love what you love. In the depth of your hopes and desires lies your silent knowledge of the beyond. And like seeds dreaming beneath the snow, your heart dreams of spring. And like seeds dreaming beneath the snow, your heart dreams of spring. Trust the dreams, for in them is hidden the gate to eternity. I was once in a period of being, not being lost, but feeling quite lost. And a mentor of mine says, Where do your dreams come from? Where do your dreams come from? Trust the dreams, for in them is hidden the gate to eternity. Your fear of death is but the trembling of the shepherd when he stands before the king whose hand is to be laid upon him in honor. Is the shepherd not joyful beneath his trembling, that he shall wear the mark of the king? Yet is he not more mindful of his trembling? For what is it to die but to stand naked in the wind and to melt into the sun? Some more beautiful practice instruction. Die standing naked in the wind and melting into the sun. And what is it to cease breathing but to free the breath from its restless tides? Free the breath from its restless tides, that it may rise and expand and seek God unencumbered. Don't get caught on words. What is it to cease breathing but to free the breath from its restless tides that it may rise and expand and seek truth unencumbered? Only when you drink from the river of silence shall you indeed sing. Only when you drink from the river of silence shall you indeed sing. And when you have reached the mountaintop, then you shall begin to climb. And when the earth shall claim your limbs... Then shall you truly dance. And when the earth shall claim your limbs, then shall you truly dance. We're not talking about some moment we imagine called physical death only. Either I made this up or I read it, someone said, the opposite of death is not life, it's love. I wanted to pin that on Jung. The opposite of death is not life, it's love. And in our Zen practice, in place of love, we say going beyond opposites. Embracing the tension of opposites, not opposing We used to do a chant here at the monastery that says something like not opposing is the gateway to the Buddha mind. Zazen with the whole body. No opposites. No splitting off between you and that which you're being subjected to sitting as, as, as intimacy, as an undivided, consenting to being undivided. We can look at practice as process, something that happens over time, and there are changes, transformations, and we can appreciate it as intimacy. The freedom is right here. So thinking of it like process, Zazen is like a heat. We find this metaphor in alchemy, heat, heating up the coagulated material. We find this metaphor in Tibetan Buddhism. Actually, literally, it's said that adept meditators can sit in the snow because the heat generated by the quality of presence in them just will melt it and keep them warm. Zazen is like a heat that begins to decoagulate, it begins to thaw. We subject ourselves to thawing, it opens space within the rigid, it infuses warmth into the cold. To run with the metaphor fire. Fire doesn't discriminate. Fire will warm whatever is in its proximity. Practice awareness that doesn't discriminate. A good word is choicelessness. Even there, we suspend the will even at that most intimate place, we relinquish that most intimate function of I'll attend to this rather than that. Because as long as we're choosing this over that, then we're in the world of opposites. Practice choiceless awareness. Now, I don't mean some kind of practice where you just let your mind roam. I hear about some practices and I don't really know what the instructions are, but they say choiceless awareness and some people interpret that as just letting your mind do whatever it wants to. That's not what I mean. Like a lantern on a table that lights up whatever is in its sphere and the lit up sphere may be breath activity. Whatever that breath, choicelessly experiencing it, may an area of the body Wherever the sphere of attending, choicelessly lighting that up like a lantern that doesn't dim itself because it says, not this, but that. So try that now. Just tune into whatever your practice is, whatever the station of attention is for you. And light up that domain with attention. And engage no preference. If there's pain, fully light up that pain. If there's pleasure, fully light up that pleasure. Holding this choiceless presence steady is what we mean by steadfast zazen. There's a simplicity in it. Zazen and Seshin, especially, is reducing your life to this one moment. For part of us, that feels terrible. It feels terrible. But when we actually reduce our life to this moment, there's a simplicity and there's a vastness. There's a simplicity in the task of just sustaining the fire with faith in its light. That is the pivotal point. How much faith do we have in awareness? We both prove it to ourselves, and it's transmitted to us, that faith. Just sustaining the fire with faith in its light. Some things will vanish in that light. Some things will melt within that fire. Some things won't so easily melt, but they'll be seen more clearly. There'll be times when thoughts melt like the dew in the sun, when awareness is direct and steady. It just outshines. It just evaporates. In this light, the shapes of habit patterns that we couldn't see before, they were shadowy. Now they're in the plain light of day. And now what? It's been exposed. Now what? Just sustain this fire with faith in its light. Your sustaining of the fire is correct. Don't choose your belief about how it's going. You're sustaining this fire, is correct. It will evolve and it will change, but in each moment it's correct. Practice is multidimensional. By this light, and with this light, we can enter the question what is alive? What is alive? No amount of anyone else's words or nice poetry will ease us, ease the sense that there's something in me that's going to die. What is it that can die? What is alive? What is this awareness that hosts fear and pleasure both? What is this awareness that welcomes confusion and confidence equally? Is it mine? Am I its? By what power are you conscious at this moment? You may believe it's a heartbeat and... Electricity firing through your neurons. By what power are you conscious at this moment? There's a marvelous Korean Zen text by a monk named Chino. And Chino, his most famous text is called Tracing Back the Radiance. And that's his suggested method tracing back the radiance of awareness, tracing knowing, tracing consciousness back to its source, following the senses back to their source. This is an, an intimate gesturing of awareness. In the Soto tradition, it said turning the light within. following the mind down to what is irreducible someone told me their practice was resting in what's before thought perfect but what is before thought we don't take it for granted but we we look we illuminate we thin out the mind Practice is not about thoughtlessness, but we thin out the mind. It's kind of like deadheading. Most of them are already dead. They're about irrelevant things. They're completely inaccurate. They're making assumptions about people and places and what will happen, and 99%, if not more, are just wrong. Just corpses. We deadhead the mind, and then we can exhale into stillness and then we can peer into the place we peer from we can listen through to the place we listen from we it's such an intimate nestling into this query of what am i it's not beyond knowledge It's not beyond knowing, but it's not something that you can know. Anyway, these questions and I think all the koans are not about resolving into an answer, but about the asking. About the asking. What is alive? The fire of the asking, the looking in the asking. And this fire, this presence is love and death both. It's love and death both. It just depends on which direction you look at it from. So we're keeping the flame. We're keepers of the flame, the flame of awareness. And that's transformation itself. Keeping of the flame, it it quickens. Awareness quickens latent transformation in you. It quickens the fruit falling from the branch. Keeping of the flame is consuming. It will eat up what needs to be eaten up. It will sustain in ways that nothing else can sustain. So, as you go forward, be curious about how you view practice, because how you view it and how you experience it are related. Don't view it as a burdensome task, as a tool to increase your success. Don't view practice as a means to become a spiritual hero. view practice as being a keeper of the flame, keeper of the flame of awareness, which is liberating. Liberated from what? The flame takes care of that. So please tend it for yourself and anyone and anything else that draws near. Keeping the flame. Thank you.